I don't know about where you are, but it's starting to feel a little bit like fall here in the East Coast. Adashina Koiki on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. After a week off, we are back, and it is episode number 12 that we have for you here today. And thank you so very much uh, for joining us once again. Of course, with the calendar quickly moving from the summer into the fall, a thought in many sports fans' minds, the beginning of football, the 2014 NFL season, and of course, the 2014 college football season. Now, before we tell you some of our guests on our show, episode number 12, make sure to go to our website a lot of sports talk.com we have our preseason college football top 25 out we assembled people who are journalists former football stars on the college gridiron and the nfl gridiron and super fans a cast of six that make up our top 25 football panel like last year our second annual top 25 for college football our preseason poll is out and there are six teams from the Pac-12 in our preseason top 25 and one of our guests interview number two and our longest interview is with Lisa Horn former reporter for FoxSports.com and for the Bleacher Report and the founder of PigskinGrind.com we talk all things Pac-12 as well as her opinion about the new college football playoff another interview we have is with the head coach of the Fordham University Rams Joe Moorhead the Fordham Rams one of the surprise teams in Division 1 regardless of whether it's the bowl subdivision or the championship subdivision last year the Fordham Rams 12 and 2 last year school record 12 wins last year do you realize that the Fordham Rams last year are believed to be the only team in NCAA history with a 4,000 yard passer 3,000 yard receivers and a thousand yard rusher in a single season so if you're around New York City head up to the Fordham section of the Bronx this year this fall and check out a Fordham Rams football game we catch up with the head coach of the Fordham Rams Joe Moorhead our first interview of episode number 12 deals with auto racing going into this past Sunday's race at the Milwaukee Mile in Milwaukee Wisconsin Ryan Hunter Ray led all drivers in terms of wins on the Verizon IndyCar Series with three. One of those wins came at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the Indianapolis 500, the greatest spectacle in racing. And we talk with one of the pit crew members for Ryan Hunter Ray on Andretti Autosport. His name is Nino Venezia. He talks to us about the euphoria of winning the Indy 500 and what it was like to be on pit row on those last few laps when Ryan Hunter Ray and Helio Castro Nevis went mano a mano for the last few laps before Ryan Hunter Ray crossed the finish line first at the Brickyard. So our interview with Nino Venezia starts in another few seconds. We have interviews with Lisa Horn, and we also have an interview with Joe Moorhead. So our interview with Nino begins in another couple of seconds, and we'll see you at the end of the show. The 2014 Verizon IndyCar Series has been a thrilling one so far. And as we head to the final three races of the season, which all take place in August, there are three, possibly four drivers with a legitimate chance at winning the Drivers' Points Championship. One of those drivers happens to be the person that won the greatest spectacle in racing this year, the 2014 Indianapolis 500, Ryan Hunter-Rake, who has won the most races this season with three 
than any other driver this season. And joining us right now is one of the integral members of Ryan Hunter Ray's pit crew for Andretti Autosport. Nino Venezia joins us right now on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. First of all, Nino, thank you so very much for joining us. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, what's your responsibility when you're in the pit crew for Ryan Hunter Ray? Where do you work at specifically? Uh, I actually changed the outside rear tire for uh, for Ryan. Uh, when you say the outside, would that be uh, the side of the car that's closest to the wall? Just specifically, where what would the outside no, rear be? That's actually that's the opposite. It's okay. the when I say outside. I mean, opposite from the wall. It's the one that basically faces traffic. Okay. Uh, my, I do want to ask you about uh, Memorial Day, first of all, before we get to the season at large, uh, winning the Indianapolis 500 with Ryan Hunter Ray uh, driving it. Those last few laps when he and Helio Castroneves are going back and forth. What are your feelings? What's going through your mind as Ryan and Helio are battling through those last few laps and they're passing each other? What's going through your mind there? Well, I mean, obviously your your heart's pretty much in your chest and you're um, really excited for the moment, but you also relate back to the previous year where we were in pretty much the exact same position uh, with another with other drivers and how it was taken away from you that quickly. So it's just, it's a really tense moment. Um, I mean, pretty much the whole race is really tense, but even more so toward the end when you're in that position. What was the most tense part of that race? Was it the final few laps? Like, Can you take me through any other moments during uh, the Indianapolis 500 that were pretty hairy or tense? Uh, I would definitely say the last final laps. Um, it's it's really hard to see the whole track uh, at Indianapolis from the pit lane area. So we, you, the guys kind of monitor the race on a TV screen that we have in our pit box that the guys kind of pit crew and whatever other uh, personnel are in our pit box at the time. We kind of just watch the screen. And to tell you the truth, honestly, the last lap, the screen just, there must have been an issue with the broadcast, and the screen went went down for a couple of seconds. So at that point, I had no idea really who was leading the race. And then we, a lot of the guys got up on the wall to see what was going on, and then the next thing you saw was uh, Ryan come across the chicken line first. So you saw Ryan cross uh, the line uh, with your eyes yep. and had to climb up the wall. You didn't see it on the monitor because it went down. No, the monitor went down. And, and I, honestly, at that point, I don't know if it was back on, but we were all standing on the wall waiting to see the result. <laughs> and we were down a little bit from the start-finish line, so it was, it was such a relief. I mean, Ryan's wife was right next to me, and it, it was it a... Was, uh, a pretty um, pretty good feeling, I have to say. 
Once again, Nino Venezia of Team Andretti Autosport joining us, talking auto racing in 2014 and the Indianapolis 500 win by Andretti Autosport and Ryan Hunter-Ray. Can you remember the first few seconds uh, or the first couple of minutes after Ryan crosses the finish line first? Was it a blur? Can you go back to those first 30 seconds, couple of minutes after uh, Ryan clinched victory? What was going through your mind that you did? I would say initially it, it was such a close finish that, and we were down a, a little bit from start finish that you really didn't even know at that point uh, who who won the race. And then I remember looking up at the the pylon they have there, uh, and we were still number one on the pylon, which at that point we knew we won. And I ended up jumping off the wall and running over to where Michael and and uh, all the other team managers were to congratulate everyone. Do you draw any extra gratification with the win being for uh, the team owner, Michael Andretti, who as a driver uh, had his uh, heartbreak and heartache in Indianapolis, and the same with his father as well. Is there anything extra special you get from it, knowing that it's an Andretti um, as an owner, not necessarily as a driver winning the Indianapolis 500? I I think that definitely adds to the whole uh, appeal of, of winning the race for Michael, you know, because obviously, like we've talked about, he's been so close to winning that as a driver and and never actually did, you know. So for him to, for, to be on the team when he wins as an owner for the third time is, is a really good feeling, and it, it definitely adds to it, I would say. Uh, and this is your, what, second or third uh, part of an Indy 500 win? There's this year, I believe 2007, yes? Yep, 2007 was I was with the team uh, at that time, but I wasn't on. You get a little bit more of a feeling when you're actually on the car. I was I was back with Tony Kanan because he was still driving with us at that time, and Dario Franchitti had won our last Indy Apples 500 win. So you know it, it's a great feeling because you know everyone shares and it's a big family and and the team aspect of it, but when you know that you have built the car and did all the pit stops and and how much goes into that, it's just that much of a better feeling when you're actually on the car. Uh, Now tell me you had a little bit of the milk that Ryan Hunter-Ray had, please. Yes, yes, I did. I did have a little bit bit of milk, and I I was actually surprised because there wasn't as much milk as you would think would be floating around that um, in that ceremony. There was only a couple, I'd say two or three of the smaller bottles that were floating around, but yes, uh, pretty much everyone on the crew got uh, got the taste of that milk, and it was delicious, mm. I have to say. Mm. Once again, Nino Venezia joining us, talking auto racing, a member of Team Andretti Autosport. Now, this season, uh, Ryan and your team, uh, you have the most wins. Well, Ryan does individually uh, as a driver with three. You just won Iowa uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, the first five races, Ryan hunter finishes first or second in four of the first five, including uh, the Indianapolis 500. Can you take me back to, to the beginning of the season and possibly pinpoint what went absolutely right in those first five races to finish in the podium and first or second for the first five? 
Well, I think you really have to take your hats off to uh, Ryan, for one, which is obvious, and two, the development that we've done uh, throughout the winter season because that's what really uh, shot us out of the hole like that so quickly to, to win and, and get such good finishes. You know, you, we developed a little bit more um, than other teams had over the winter time, and it, it just really showed in those first five races. Uh, what did you specifically as the team work on during those uh, winter months and during the winter season? What are the most important parts that you had to work on and do to get yourself in the position to start off the way you did this season? Uh, just generally speaking, uh, more aerodynamic testing and, you know, suspension and shock work is, is basically what, uh, what we test in the off season. And, a lot of, sh- a lot of shocks. And where do you test? Uh, we test, we test, uh, many places. I mean, we test down in Florida a lot, uh, Sebring International Raceway. We test there a lot, and then we also do, you know, some wind tunnel, which is off-site stuff, and uh, some shaker rigs throughout the United States that we use, which is actually uh, a rig that the car goes on, and you you test the uh, the shocks, basically. Now... Going into these final three races, Ryan Hunter Ray is now third uh, in the uh, driver's standings. How comfortable are you in the next three races uh, in terms of having Ryan and members of your team uh, be able to get to the top of the driver's standings? Are those courses, I think Wisconsin is next, are those courses, uh, types of courses that your driver or drivers are very comfortable in? So just break down, so I guess uh, assess the next three races and the uh, comfortability that you have with those tracks. Well, absolutely. Uh, Ryan has always been really good in Milwaukee Speedway. Uh, we've won the last, I don't know, maybe two years there, I think. And he's had he's had multiple wins at that course, and our team has had multiple wins at that course. So I'm very confident going into the Milwaukee uh, race that we can finish at top and, and gain some points on the two other guys that we're chasing. Uh, so Mama Raceway, we haven't always had the greatest luck there, but we've been fast the last few years. So once again, we're, we're going to go out there and test uh, end of this week and, and try and come up with uh, something that's going to be really good for the race time. So I'm very confident in Sonoma as well. Um, and then also the the finale, California Speedway, which is uh, a big two and a half mile oval. Uh, I really, I really think that we should do well there. Uh, we haven't won that race at least in the last few years since we have uh, used the new chassis, but we really did show signs of uh, speed with qualifications last year and leading a bunch of laps. So. All in all, I'm pretty confident going into the last three races. Nino Venezia joining us, pit crew member for Team Andretti Autosport and Ryan hunter Ray. Uh, how did you get involved in racing and being a part of a pit crew? How does that uh, begin to evolve? Uh, 
did you start very young either as a driver or as a member a crew member uh, just the origin of how you got to where you are today well really um outside of high school i went into uh an electronics and computer background and I was working in that industry for a few years back outside of the Philadelphia area where I grew up. And, uh, and I mean, what most kids, you know, or, or younger boys are uh, somewhat interested in, in racing, and it just seemed like an exciting type of career. And I had a couple friends that uh, worked at Penske Racing, which was, it used to be based out of Reading, Pennsylvania, and uh, basically got into it that way. Just through a friend, I threw a resume over to them, and, and they gave me an opportunity doing a, doing a driving school for them. And I just worked my way up the ranks and eventually moved out to Indianapolis, where I uh, started my career. Uh, did you ever want to be a driver? I did, and when I was young, I drove, uh, you know, go-karts and, and uh, modified cars and stuff like that. But it honestly, it just became too expensive of a habit to, you know, maintain if you weren't on a, a high, high level. So that's another reason why uh, it was an easy transition for me to get into the the mechanicing on the cars. Now, with auto racing, there have been so many great names and drivers. Of course, you mentioned Penske and Roger Penske. You're on a team that's owned by Michael Andretti, and you uh, and everyone, many sports fans know about the Andretti family uh, in racing. Uh, have there been moments where you've been awed in terms of actually meeting a team owner uh, who might have also been a driver as well. Uh, has there been any moment or moments where you've met someone um, in the industry where you've been awed at, in ter where you've uh, met a person, whether a driver, former driver, or a uh, team owner, where, you, where uh, your jaw dropped? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, just, just being as close to the Andretti family, and uh, we, when I first met, when I first started with the team and, and got the opportunity to talk with Mario Andretti, that was a kind of awe moment for me, uh, just because, I mean, who hasn't followed his career growing up and just, just uh, what the guy has accomplished in so many different forms of racing, that at first was a really awe, awe moment. Uh, once again, Nino Venezia joining us from Andretti Autosport. Uh, the area of the country where you're from, you mentioned uh, your time in Reading and you mentioned your time just outside of Philadelphia as well. I believe that's produced uh, many uh, pit crew members and drivers as well. What about that area uh, is so passionate or why is that area so passionate about auto racing where you're from? Well, uh, that's a... That's a tough question. Other than sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, no, it's, it's okay. Uh, I think that Eastern Pennsylvania in general is really big on dirt racing. Is where it, is where it's bred, you know, and modifieds and and sprint cars, and that's just a, a really competitive area. 
of the country, probably if not the most competitive area of the country. And I think that's where the roots of many of the guys that have come from that area have, have come from, really. Uh, my final question to you, I really thank you so much for the time. Uh, going back to the Indy 500 win, you have the Indianapolis 500 win in 2014, and also, I believe, as well, you became an uncle, or maybe an uncle again. Uh, your sister, uh, I believe, uh, gave birth uh, to a baby boy. Uh, which one do you rank higher? <laughs> wow. <laughs> You know, you have to say, I have to say my sister's, my sister's, uh, son has to rank a little bit higher, <laughs> but it, it, it's a close second with Indianapolis 1200. <laughs> just, just something that I've won in my whole career. <laughs> uh, 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 is this the first time you're an uncle? First time uncle? It is, it is, and I think that's another thing that makes it so special. Nino Venezia, I can't thank you enough for the time uh, that you gave us on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. Thank you so very much for the time, and best of luck to you, Ryan Hunter-Ray, and the rest of Andretti Autosport, and all the drivers and uh, constructors uh, for the final three races of the season. Nino, thank you so very much. We'll catch up with you down the road. Okay, thank you. From multiple teams in the top 10 to multiple legitimate Heisman Trophy candidates, the 2014 season in the Pac-12 may prove to be one of the league's finest as we get ready for the 2014 college football season, which is just days away. And joining us right now on the line for the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast is one of our really good friends to talk about the Pac-12 and Pac-12 football, Lisa Horn, formerly of FoxSports.com and Bleacher Report, and now the founder Lord High Executioner and Empress of PigskinGrind.com. Lisa, thank you so very much for joining us, and how are you doing today? I am doing fine. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. And I do want to remind my audience or let my audience know for the first time that if you do invite Lisa to a wedding, and your wedding takes place between late August and early January, you will not be showing up. That's right? Correct, but you will get an awesome present. Okay, no problem, no problem. So don't mess with Lisa during uh, college football season. And again, college football season is right here. And uh, my first question to you, talking about the Pac-12, I mentioned the teams in the top 10. There are a couple in the uh, Amway poll, Oregon, as well as UCLA. In our poll, the A Lot of Sports Talk poll, Stanford is number 10, along with UCLA at number 8 and Oregon at number 3. This has to be, of all seasons in the Pac-8, Pac-10, Pac-12, this has to be one of the most anticipated seasons in Pac-12 history, one of the most or the most anticipated uh, season in Pac-12 history. What's your opinion on that? It is because you're seeing some teams that weren't normally considered heavyweights now moving up. I mean, look at UCLA. Uh, I have the number four in my own, my own poll, but I, I'm glad to see that the national media is giving the Bruins respect because I do think they, they deserve it. I mean, I, I think Brett Hundley is part of the reason why, but then you've got some defensive stars like Miles Jack for UCLA, but UCLA returns like nine offensive starters and eight on the defense. So anytime you have that many veterans returning off a 10-3 and three team, you know that the record is going to get a little bit better. You're going to see maybe, you know, 11-2 and two or 12-1, and one, something like that. But, you know, USC is still in the mix. You've got Oregon. You've got Stanford. There's, there's a lot of parity in the league, and I think it's just as tough as the SEC. 
I do want to talk about that a little bit more in terms of comparing the Pac-12 uh, to the SEC. I know we talked with uh, Ben Gardner last year, who was on the defensive line at Stanford, and he mentioned to us how he would love for his team, Stanford at the time, to match themselves up with the SEC and see where they uh, stack up. Is it possible that uh, the Pac-12, in terms of the competitive nature, if not from top to bottom, the top six or seven teams, are they on a par with the SEC right now? I think they are. I think, you know, when you look at the SEC, I mean, the conference has had remarkable success, but at the same time, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand that the SEC, especially the defenses, are built to stop the power running game, like in Alabama. Um, Alabama's defense is built to stop a, a, you know, the typical three and out, a, a pro set, strong running game. And so when you look at the, the bowls, the big bowls, and the, the BCS championships, is like LSU versus Ohio State. I mean, you're talking about three, year, three yards and a cloud of dust versus LSU. I'm going to give the SEC the advantage every time. So for me, the SEC, in most of the matchups recently, has had the competitive advantage just by via the matchups. Okay, but just because you have an advantage in the matchup doesn't necessarily mean you're the better team. Let's look at what happened to Alabama last season. Alabama lost to, um, let's see, they lost to Auburn in the Iron Bowl. And granted, it was kind of a fluky game, but, but the scoreboard says they lost. And then they got pounded by Oklahoma, an up-tempo team. Both of the teams that Alabama lost to were more of an up-tempo offense. Okay, the matchup is key, and I think the more up-tempo offenses you see starting to take over in the college football, the more mediocre results you're going to see from the SEC. This is the first time in a long time I can remember that the SEC went 0-2 in BCS Bowls. Mm. Now, you mentioned the matchups uh, with Alabama and certain mm-hmm. SEC type of teams. Just last year, in terms of the Pac-12 matching up with other uh, leagues in the BCS conferences while the BCS was still in existence, 6-3 and three against BCS conference teams last year in the regular season, and 6-3 and three in bowl games uh, was the Pac-12 as well. So uh, the matchups that the Pac-12 has had with other teams, at least last year, uh, definitely proves your point that the Pac-12 uh, definitely matched up well with other teams outside of its own conference. Um, once again, joined by Lisa Horn of pigskingrind.com, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Pac-12 and individual teams, and of course, the team that gets most of the attention, um, not just because of the uniforms that they wear uh, in the Pac-12, are the uh, Oregon Ducks. Marcus Mariota uh, decided to decline his opportunity to uh, go into the NFL and comes back to the University of Oregon. I almost get the sense that with Mariota back and with all the talk about the Oregon Ducks and their fast-paced offense with Chip Kelly and now with uh, Mark Halfrick, that if it's not this year, then when will it be for the Oregon Ducks? Do you almost get a sense of urgency now because Oregon's been so close but hasn't been over the hump, not only in the Pac-12 title game, but um, nationally as well? Is this kind of uh, uh, this year or bust for the Oregon Ducks? God, Addie, that's a really good question because, you know what, first of all, Marcus Mariota, I, a lot of people have never talked to him. He's a really smart kid. You know, when you look at him, you, you think, you know, he's you know he's kind of a hot dogger. <laughs> he yep. runs around the field everything. Really very academic-oriented, really a nice young man. I mean, the state of Hawaii it should be very, you know, proud of, of, of his accomplishments, and both academically and athletically. So... With that being said, I do think that Oregon needs to turn the page here because, you know, 
beating a Wisconsin, beating a Texas, beating Ohio, or actually they lost Ohio State in the Rose Bowl yep. in 2009. But they, they've, had, they've had success in the Rose Bowl, but they haven't gone on to the next level. Yes, they played Auburn. In, in 2010, and they lost by a field goal. But um, I still, I still think that they need to turn the t- page because there's, the, it, it, it's kind of like when you look at Georgia, the Georgia Bulldogs. It's like, when are we going to go to the next page? Yeah. We're still stuck here. We need to go here. And you know, I, I'm not sure that Mark Helfrich is the guy to get it done. So um, we're going to see. I think that the, that the Oregon will give Helfrich at least a couple years, but he's got all of the. The, the pieces in place on the offense. On the defense, not so much. There's a lot of youth. I love Ethel Ekri Alomo. You got uh, it right. One of the, <laughs> yeah, did I get it right? You uh, did, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, he's a really nice kid, too. But, you know, they check out four uh, supplemental insurance policies on these kids. So I like what the, do- the school is doing to support the kids they have there. The defense, it's a little suspect, and I, and I know Duck fans, you, you, you hear that every year. But, you know, um, I think it's, it's, this is going to be a little bit of a problem this year, more so than, than before. You're going to see it in the win-loss column. Mm. Um, do you not think Mark Helfrich and the Oregon Ducks is the perfect fit? And if so, if you think it's not the perfect fit, why don't you think uh, coach and team is a really good gel uh, right now with uh, Helfrich and the University of Oregon? Well, because Oregon has a problem stopping the power running. And, you know, in order to be successful in this day and age, you have to be able to stop a fast offense as well as a power running offense. And if you look at Oregon's losses last year, 20 to 26 at Stanford, and um, they lost uh, 42 to 16 to Arizona. Um, (laughs) Both of those teams had a lot of power running in in, in there. And, And that's a problem. Oregon lost to Stanford the previous year. And then they lost to USC the previous year when they looked like they were on a roll. They also lost to LSU. So there's some big games that Oregon, for some reason, tends to fold. And you know what? Stanford kind of has the same problem, but Oregon is more high profile than Stanford, I think, at this point. Just by Phil Knight and, like you mentioned, the uniforms and everything else about the Oregon Ducks. So their losses are going to be more significant. In, in my opinion. So you're saying that Michigan State game on September 6th, the power running team, is going to be a tough one for the Ducks? I, I think it's going to be a tough one for two reasons. Number one, um, Michigan State's defense. I love its defense. I know they lost a lot of key players, but Mark D'Antonio is, he'll just, it, 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 I don't think it's going to be a problem for Michigan State. Um, I, I know that the stadium is going to be loud. It's going to be noisy because I do think that that is going to be one of the most important games of the year. Yeah. One of the two teams is going to move on to the college football playoff. And it's going to be determined by this um, date. I, I like D'Antonio. I think the other problem for the Ducks is that you know what Michigan State returns Connor Cook at quarterback. I can't remember. But was I can't even remember the last time that everyone was like really excited for a Michigan State quarterback to return. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm thinking who Brian Burke. No. All right. It's 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 a while. All it's right. Been a while. Like, oh yeah, we get him back. You know. I mean, no. And I like this kid a lot. So I'm I'm really excited over Connor Cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, no disrespect to Drew Stanton and other uh, Michigan State quarterbacks in the past. Right. But, but Connor Cook uh, definitely has been uh, a very good performer for the Michigan State Spartans. Once again, talking with Lisa Horn of PigskinGrind.com, talking about uh, the Pac-12. Uh, the champions of the Pac-12 
the past two seasons in the Pac-12 championship game, not Oregon, but the Stanford Cardinal. And the last four years for the Stanford Cardinal have ended with BCS Bowl appearances. They're probably still one of the most, if not the most, underappreciated team uh, in the country. And going into this season, uh, you have Kevin Hoven, Hogan back at quarterback uh, for the Stanford Cardinal. Uh, are you high on the Stanford Cardinal this season? They do have personnel losses, but David Shaw is there, uh, a bright young head coach. Uh, are you a believer in Stanford this season? I'm a believer in David Shaw. Yes. I think he's one of the best coaches of the country, and he's such a class act. He is actually, you know what, he's one of my favorite coaches to talk to because when you, when you ask the question, he'll stop and think about it for a second before he answers. It's not because he's trying to think of the canned coach speak that we often get. It's because he's trying to really think about that and his responses are always very thoughtful. So I have such respect for him. And I think this year is going to be a little bit more difficult because, you know, I mean, they don't have a lot of starters back. They lost more than half their offense, number one, the Cardinal bid. Number two, Ty Montgomery is hurt. He's, his knee and his arm both are hurt. And, in fact, I don't even think he's going to be available for the UC Davis game. And I hate to say this, but you know what? That UC Davis makes me uh, – Davis game in week one makes me a little nervous. Really? I, I, Why? I, yeah, no. Well, because I, if I'm not mistaken, I think um, the last time they played um, Sanford lost to UC Davis. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 if, if I'm not mistaken, I, you know what? We'll have one of our assistants go look yeah. that up. But I do, I, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those, because USC is the following week. Is it a trap game for, for Stanford? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, the Stanford road schedule and i made uh not necessarily made light of it but i highlighted it um on our top 25 their road schedule is probably the most meat grinderish murderous um yeah at washington at Notre Dame, at Arizona State, at Oregon, at UCLA. It's almost as if, if if Stanford won 11 games, as they have done the past few years, David Shaw might be coach of the year given that schedule alone, uh, let alone some of the teams that they beat. That's a, a murderous schedule. But it almost seems as if, and uh, you can confirm this, that no matter what questions you have of Stanford, oh, they have to replace Andrew Luck, oh, they have to replace Toby Gerhardt, they always get it done. Somehow. They do, and you know what? I mean, you look at Kevin Hogan, who was obviously much more mobile than Andrew Luck ever was, and, and look how Shaw just kind of went with it. And I mean, he's one of those coaches that, here's what I have. Let me let me make the offense support that. Instead of trying to, you know, pick a, a round peg and stick it into a square hole, you know, with Kevin Hogan, he changed things up and, and made it a more mobile off- offense yeah. instead of forcing Kevin you know, Hogan to, you know, just be a you know, pocket quarterback. So I really respect that about him, and, 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 and you know, when he preaches the academics, he preaches, his, he preaches just the whole persona of the Stanford football team. It, it's, it's the way it was in the 70s. You know, Stanford was really good in the 70s. I don't think people remember this, but, you know, it's, it's, it's after that where they kind of went downhill a little bit. But I, 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 I think that the road game, even the one at Cal, they have a date at Cal, and I know it's Cal, but, you know, in a rivalry game, anything can happen. Yeah. Like last year, Auburn and Alabama, in a rivalry game, I mean, the point spreads from out the window. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, you just never know what's going to happen. So even a date at Cal is, is hard. Stanford's got a really tough schedule, really tough. It's going to be hard to overcome. Uh, two things. One, I remember how good Stanford was in the 70s, even though I guess I wasn't born. Darren Nelson, a great running back uh, for the Stanford Cardinal, went to the NFL with the Vikings. I remember watching him from Stanford. Uh, uh, very good team. And two, 
UC Davis 20, Stanford 17 in 2005. There you go. <laughs> right. So, yes, we got our uh, crack research staff on that. So, yes, uh, it's almost 10 years in the making, but UC Davis trying to uh, make the magic happen uh, back in 2005. <laughs> so, once again, uh, Lisa Horn joining us of Pigskin Grind. As you can tell, Lisa and I are good friends and we have fun, especially when we're talking uh, college football. Uh, you mentioned UCLA at the very top and how talented they are and all all of the people they have back. Brett Hundley is on the Heisman Trophy shortlist. He also declined an opportunity uh, to jump into the National Football League, has come back uh, for his junior year. Is it possible that even with the Oregon Ducks and all the talent that they have in Eugene, that UCLA might be, if not the most talented team, well, if not the best team in the Pac-12, the most talented team in the league? There's definitely talent. I mean, Anyone who wants to know anything about UCLA, go ahead and, if you can, go on the Pac-12 network and watch the UCLA versus Arizona game because Miles Jack yes. was a beast. <laughs> and he played on both sides of the ball. He had like 120 yards rushing. And then he had eight tackles as a linebacker. He, you know what? He, he, he could win the Heisman this year. If, if Mora decides to put him on both sides of the ball, I have a feeling he's going to keep him on the defense because UCLA could probably use a little help in the defense since they lost Anthony Barr and um, who else did they lose? They lost another linebacker, and I, for some reason I'm trying to remember who it was. But anyways, um, they lost two really good uh, – oh, Jordan Thumwalt. Yeah. So but here's the thing about UCLA. I'm a little, a little concerned about the O-line, but then again I'm thinking, you know what, Adrian Clem, the assistant coach there, it's just – it's like he's got it down. Last year UCLA – uh, they had three true freshmen start on the O-line. And that's, that's like a scary thing for any coach to have to deal with. But UCLA got it done. This year they have the same problem. Simon Goins is still recovering from bone spur surgery. And they've got some guys out with various nicks and some still recovering from surgery. Some may, may not be back the first week for the Virginia game at Virginia. So there is a, a really big possibility that UCLA, once again, could be starting a, um, a true freshman. This time it would be Najee Toron. And, you know, I, I just I think that if you can go ahead and start true freshmen on an important position like the offensive line and not really worry about it, then you've got your program going in the right direction. Because, like, a team like USC doesn't have that luxury, but UCLA does. They're so deep, and they've got so much talent waiting in the, in the wings that – I think, yeah, that UCLA probably is the best team in, in, in the conference this year. And they have the schedule going for them, unlike last year. Last year, they had to play Stanford and Oregon on the road in back-to-back -back weeks. This year, they get Stanford at home, Oregon at home, uh, USC uh, at home as well. So uh, UCLA definitely has a favorable schedule, although I will say that opener... At Virginia, at 9 a.m. local time, could be a fairly tricky one, especially given the fact that Virginia is a team that needs to perform this year uh, for Mike London's uh, job security. That could be more of a trap game, but obviously season openers are always uh, going to be tough. So that I didn't know it was 9 a.m. Are you kidding? It's, it's a noon game. It's a noon game. It's a new, Wait, well, noon Eastern, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. local for you, 9 a.m. Uh, oh, that's, that's, yeah. well, you know what, more, we'll probably have them, yeah, yeah, he'll, they'll be ready, you know, it's, it, I, listen, I had UCLA winning, oh, let's see, what are we going to say, Virginia, UCLA, I'll say UCLA 50, Virginia 17. Oh, well, you think that the time difference um, won't 
matter too much and there won't be too much jet lag uh, in the UCLA bodies. In the- yeah, I, I mean, I like Mike London. I like what he did at Richmond. Yeah. But I think that there's too many issues going on over there. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, there's a lot of talent in the, in the secondary at Virginia. I think right. that, that they're definitely going to test uh, Brett Hundley. But in the end, no, I think UCLA's got it. Yeah. Too much speed. Yes. Uh, once again, Lisa Horn joining us. Uh, we're going to talk about UCLA's crosstown rival a little bit uh, in uh, USC. And actually, I want to ask a question. USC has a new head coach in Steve Sarkeesian, uh, former offensive coordinator at USC. So does the University of Washington. Steve Sarkeesian leaving. Chris Peterson uh, leaving Boise State, which I thought he would probably never do since he built such a... Um, empire in Boise and he's now in Washington at least in year one who do you think is going to have a bigger impact with their new school Steve Sarkeesian with USC or Chris Peterson with the University of Washington uh, I think Sarkeesian is at USC but only because for one he inherits a veteran quarterback yep. veteran running back okay I, I think that's that's really important granted he's probably only going to have 60 scholarship players when everything is said and done but I think when you, when you look at Washington Huskies and what Chris Peterson's inheriting, I mean, he's, his quarterback, Siler Miles, has already been suspended for the first game. He doesn't have running back Bishop Sankey, who led the Pac-12 in rushing last year. Um, they do get a lot of guys back, like Shaq Thompson, Thompson, who's a great linebacker, but they also lose some really talented guys. And so I think just from that standpoint, uh, I, and although Washington's got a easier schedule, definitely. Um, I, I do think that Sarkeesian is going to have the better record. Because even when Sarkeesian was at Washington, what was the best he ever did? Seven wins? Yeah, seven wins. Seven, well, last year, eight wins, I believe. Eight yeah, wins? Last year was his okay, best seven year, wins yeah. in the regular I mean, his nickname was Seven Wins Steve. So, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, during the regular season, I mean, I, I know a lot of ESC fans out here call him Siete, which is Spanish for seven. I, I mean, I, I, you know, and he, he has, no, I know, brutal, right? But it's fact. Um, he he never had more than seven wins in the regular season. So until last year, we'll confirm that eight and four last year. They won their bowl game. Uh, they had nine, but before that, seven and six, seven and six, seven and six. So obviously, yeah, uh, seven okay. wins. Steve so, yeah, there's a lot of sevens in there. Game. Yes. So, I, you know, I mean, I, I just think USC's coming off a ten and four record, coming off of a Las Vegas bowl win over Fresno State. They open with Fresno State. Fresno State is normally a school that USC would probably be nervous about playing. Um, I hope they're nervous about playing. Sarkeesian said he was nervous about playing them, the Bulldogs. Yeah. But I, I think that, you know, you got to be careful because the, the date with Stanford the following week is looming, and you got to make sure you're not overlooking the Bulldogs. So I think whatever USC does to Fresno State in the first game is going to set the tone for the rest of the season, unlike some other schools like UCLA. Game one for USC, really important, because they got to keep rolling after that, that Las Vegas bowl win. But I do think Sarkeesian will have a better um, season at USC than Peterson does at Washington. Uh, has Coach Sarkeesian or anybody uh, associated with USC tried to stir the pot in terms of the rivalry with UCLA? Because it now seems as if UCLA is now the king of Los Angeles, which uh, that title has been with USC for the longest time. But uh, we see Steve Sarkeesian now coming in. Is there um, any rhetoric in terms of trying to reclaim uh, Los Angeles back from UCLA? Uh, you know, Sarkeesian's kind of an interesting guy. I mean, just to give you an example, I mean, I asked him, I said, how excited were the players were when they found out that USC will be playing, uh, opening with Alabama, I think, 2016. And 
he said, I think they should be more worried about uh, Fresno State. So he's not one of those guys that looks ahead more than one game. Coaches say that all the time. We know that. We never look ahead. Well, they do. We know they do, and we know the players do. And I know the players are really excited to play Alabama eventually. But as far as, you know, stirring up the pot against uh, UCLA, I, you know, it was interesting. I, I had gotten a conversation with the Bruin fan, and, you know, we own this town. At that, that's UCLA's phrase, and, and they do. They're, they're 2-0 and against USC, but... On a, uh, let, let's be also realistic that, that, that they've done it against a team that hasn't had 85 scholarship players as well. So I think more people are going to give the Bruins more credit, one, when they win the Pac-12, and number two, when they do it um, against an SC team that's at, at 85 scholarships. Once again, Lisa Horn joining us from pickskingrind.com. Last season, we talked off the record about our sleeper teams, um, not just in the <laughs> Pac-12, but nationally. And you told me your sleeper team was Arizona State. And all Arizona State did was win the Pac-12 South, uh, win at UCLA, uh, and then beat Arizona, the Territorial Cup, to uh, clinch it. Uh, they won 10 games. And my sleeper was Missouri, and they were one half away from possibly playing in the national championship game. So we were, our radar was working in terms no, of. No, we're brilliant. Teams. Let's just say, yeah. We're <laughs> brilliant. You're brilliant. I had my lucky charms before I talked with you uh, last year. So I didn't have my lucky charms this year, so I may be uh, totally off with my possible sleeper pick. But uh, with it being a Pac-12 team last year, do you see a Pac-12 team possibly being a sleeper in the league or nationally uh, like Arizona State was last year? Uh, So just talk to me about maybe one or two teams that you have your eye on that maybe not a lot of people across the country may have their eyes on. I I don't have any sleepers in the Pac-12. I think that probably the five teams that we talk about most in the Pac-12, um, they're, they're going to probably do what they're expected to do. I think nationally, there are two teams that I'm looking at as sleepers, but now that David Pollack of ESPN came out and said one of his top four teams in the playoff is, is this team that I like, I kind of feel deflated. It's like, oh, the secret's out. But um, I'm really high in Michigan State. Mm-hmm. As I stated earlier, I do think that the Spartans, if they beat Oregon, and I do believe they will, that they uh, they will be in the college football playoff. And and I think a lot of people have to respect Michigan State. I mean, this is a Michigan State that beat Stanford in the Rose Bowl. Okay, yep. Stanford's a good team. We know that, but I think it's also going to help the Big Ten with a little bit more respect. And I, you know, if you beat Ohio State, you beat uh, let's see who else do they play? I think Northwestern and and and. They usually play Michigan, and they don't have uh, Notre Dame on their schedule this year. But um, they they do they do have some team. They're going to have to eventually play in Nebraska or, or Wisconsin in, in the in the championship. I think you got to respect that, and that's one team. But my biggest team. Are you ready? My I'm biggest ready. sleeper of the year. So this is the one where we're going to look brilliant. Is Kansas State, baby? Okay, Kansas State. The reason why is because Bill Snyder, when he gets a veteran quarterback to return has a magical season. If you look at what happened a couple years ago with Colin Klein, when he returned Colin Klein, Colin Klein was a Heisman finalist. They ended up going to the Fiesta Bowl and getting spanked by Oregon, but the bottom line is that Kansas State had a really great year. I, I think they went 11-2. and two. Yep. The previous year under Klein, they went 10-3. and three. Okay, last year, they, they, they were kind of having a, a problem trying to decide, okay, who's going to be our quarterback? Is it going to be um, Jake Waters? Who's it going to be? Well, Jake Waters was the guy who broke Cam Newton's uh, record a JUCO record for uh, pass completion percentage. So I love Jake Waters. I think the team has a really good shot of winning the Big 12. I know Oklahoma is really good, but, but but Kansas State is my sleeper. 
Kansas State is the sleeper. We Auburn better it down. prepared for him. Yes, yeah. I was about to say Auburn has yeah. to go to Manhattan uh, and right. play Kansas State. And if Kansas State were to win that, it could set off a really good season uh, for the Wildcats, who are number 22 uh, in our preseason poll. I did mention in uh, in breaking down Kansas State, Kansas State's two biggest games in the league, obviously Oklahoma and Baylor, they're both road games. So at wow. Baylor, at Oklahoma. So that's going to be and, there's one more thing, too. I, I forgot to mention this, that, you know, last year, Bill Snyder really loaded up on JUCOs, right? Yes. Because he lost so much talent. Right. I mean, he went heavy JUCO, and he usually does. I mean, but last year was, it just seemed like, it was like, wow, how many junior college transfers do you have? Well, this year, they're in their final year. They're much more experienced, and that's why I think you're going to see a real, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm high on Bill Snyder, I'm high on uh, Jake Waters, and we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. All right, so I got to come up with my couple of sleepers. Yeah, who I got? Okay, I have two teams, one in the Big Ten, and I guess I'll start with that first because the second one is going to be kind of out of the blue. Uh, My first uh, sleeper is Iowa because their schedule actually really helps them out. Their first four games, their first three games are at home, then they're on the road against Pittsburgh. That's a very important game. Their road games are not that hard. Um, Pittsburgh, Purdue, Maryland, Minnesota is going to be pretty tough. Jerry Kill's team did very well last year. Um, and um, I believe Illinois, uh, they have on the road. So they avoided Ohio State, they Michigan, avoid Michigan Ohio- State? They avoid all of them except for Wisconsin. And they have Wisconsin wow. at home. They avoid all those teams. They avoid Ohio State. They avoid Michigan. They avoid Michigan State. Their toughest game essentially of the year is Wisconsin. And that's in November at home. And then they face Nebraska, which is, I guess, now an emerging rivalry because I believe they're border states. That's also at home. So Iowa could have a pretty, pretty good season. Jake Rudock is back um, at quarterback. He uh, played for them last year um, and did fairly well. So Iowa is a team that I'll look out for. I think they can win at least nine games, if not more. Um, so if they can beat Iowa State in the Cyhawk Trophy, which I believe they brought back the original Cyhawk Trophy after they changed it for a year, and it looks That's so That's always good. a fun game, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes, Iowa, Iowa State's always fun. Um, it always has a lot of drama um, as and well. And Battle of the Corn, you got to love it. Exactly. My totally out-of-the-radar sleeper team, and it all depends on if they can pull off the upset in Week 1, which I think they can. I don't think they will. I think they can, and if they do, I think they can go 12 and 0 on the year. That team is Navy. They play Love it. Navy. They play Ohio State first game of the year in Baltimore at M&T Bank Stadium. The last time Ohio State and Navy played, it was a season opener. I think it was 2009, and Navy was about 10 yards away from winning in Columbus. Uh, they lost 31-27, and opening up with an option team to begin the year is probably one of the toughest chores that any coach has to deal with. Because you prepare all year long with your defense, your base defense, and then all of a sudden, you got to prepare for the option. And Navy in Baltimore against Ohio State, if they win that, they should be undefeated going into the November 1st game against Notre Dame. And we know Notre Dame's having some issues uh, right now with um, the um, academic fraud, dishonesty, whatever you want to call it, with uh, some players being withheld uh, right now, let alone possibly being suspended. If Navy beats Ohio State in week one, that's a tall order. It is. But if they were to be able to beat Ohio State in Baltimore in week one, I think there's a pretty good chance that they run the table. 
and go undefeated. You know, I'm looking at their schedule, though. Now, but, but does that mean that they're really a good team? Because look at this. Texas State, <laughs> Western Kentucky, yeah, yeah. Milita- is that Villa- Virginia Military? Yeah, VMI. Yeah, yeah okay. VMI. They got Georgia six. Southern and <laughs> South Alabama. Like, what, four of those teams were in the FCS a couple years ago. Absolutely. Yeah, they've got a pretty weak schedule. They have a very weak schedule. But if they go undefeated, they will have That's beaten... That's not a usual Navy schedule. It is not. No, it is not. Because they usually have pretty tough teams uh, on the yeah. schedule. But they do have... They usually play the Ball States. Now, one year they played Ball State. Ball State was really, really good. Um, I guess when they scheduled Rutgers, uh, Rutgers has fallen on harder times. But by the time they... At the time they scheduled them three or four years ago, uh, Rutgers was one of the best teams in the Big East when the Big East was still called the Big East. Um, so now Rutgers is probably on the lower half of the uh, Big Ten ladder. So the schedule's not hard at all. But if they run the table, they will have had wins against Ohio State and Notre Dame, which... Which is, you know, that's... Listen, if... if it's a balance between... Schedule, it's a balance between... Ohio, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's a balance between how much stock do you put in in beating Ohio State and Notre Dame compared to the rest of the schedule. So... Uh, you know what? I mean, yes, it's weak, but if they beat Ohio State and Notre Dame, I don't care, even Notre Dame when it went 3-9, and nine, it's still Notre Dame. Come on. Yeah, and... If they beat those two teams, you got to respect them. Yes. Because it's not their fault they have a lousy schedule. Yeah, and, and to be honest, Keenan Reynolds, their quarterback, might be one of the two or best three, two or three best option quarterbacks that Navy's ever had, and that's saying something. Um, I believe he had one game last year where he, like, they ran for seven touchdowns in a game. Now, it might have been against much inferior competition. I forget who it was against. I believe it was a Division One team. Uh, but if the season opener will tell everything for the Navy midshipmen. It'll say You've also forgot team. to remember the last time they played in 2009, yeah, Navy yeah, won. Yeah, no, no, they almost won. Ohio State won by four. Oh, Ohio that's State right. won by four. But Navy was driving to <laughs> yeah, win the game, and they got stopped, I believe, 10, I think it was like 10 yards short. Um, I had, knew it was a close game. It was, was 31-27. Like, oh, okay. yeah. Yes, and it was the season opener. And just like this season mm. opener, okay, so if I believe that if you're going to beat Ohio State or one of those top-tier teams, if you are not one of those top-tier teams but have aspirations of having a good year, get them in week one. Get them in week one. And if I and if the Navy midshipmen, with their discipline, usual discipline, um, if they're able to stick with Ohio State and possibly uh, nick the game at the end, I believe the Navy midshipmen could easily go 12-0. and Yes, the schedule is uber weak. And yes, they have, uh, I think, three or four bye weeks in the second half of the season. Uh, but they play six or seven games in a row uh, to begin the year. I think Navy could be a team that if they were to beat Ohio State, and I'm not saying that they will, I'm not saying that. It could be close, though. they got to keep it close. I think it's going to be close. And if they are able to beat um, Ohio State, I think a 12-0 season is definitely in the cards. At the very least, they'll be uh, 6-0 or 7-0 or 8-0 when the Notre Dame game comes on November 1st. And that's going to be – game day might be there if Navy's undefeated with a win against Ohio State. um, (laughs) As Notre Dame goes into – I believe that game's in uh, Baltimore as well. I don't think that game's in Annapolis. Oh, Notre Um, Dame fans will be apoplectic if Navy's undefeated. Exactly. (laughs) That would be something. So I cannot wait uh, for that. 
that. So we have Iowa. I have Iowa and Navy. You have Michigan State in terms of a national title sleeper, and you have Kansas State uh, as well. So I am I am really excited to see if our sleeper teams uh, wake up and uh, do a lot of damage in 2014. Uh, my last question to you. Again, we have Lisa Horn of pigskingrind.com talking college football. We were talking Pac-12, but now we've um, expanded the scope to uh, a national level. Uh, your opinions on the college football playoff? Uh, four teams, um, a panel of 13. Uh, the official policy uh, or recusal policy uh, was released yesterday. What are your opinions on uh, the college football playoff as it stands and the way it's set up right now? Well, I'd like to see more, obviously. I mean, yeah. I, I know a lot of people are like, well, four is better than two. True, but it, it's still not where it needs to be. Um, I, I think it should be minimum eight. Mm-hmm. I know. Mike Leach told me it should be minimum 60-something. So, um, you know, he's, <laughs> in fact, probably his way, it's like the whole season is a college football playoff. So um, I, the, recusal, the recusal policy, I actually like that policy because it, it takes away any finger-pointing, saying, well, you know, this person, you know, Pat Hayden didn't vote for Notre Dame in the top ten because, it's, you know, it's his rival team or, or UCLA or what have you. I think when you look at the, the coaches' polls, towards the end of the year, you always see, you get a whole bunch of blogs coming out and people start pointing out which coach voted voted yeah. for, you know, which teams higher than other teams and the reason why being it's conference alliance or whatever. I think if you take the, the people out that there might be a conflict of interest, it kind of avoids that. So I kind of like that. I do like that part of it. But, yeah, you know what, four teams. I mean, what happens if there's six teams undefeated? Yeah. Uh, doubtful, right? And when I say six, I mean from the Power Five. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think, honestly, like a, a, a Boise State coming from the Mountain West, sorry, love you, Boise State, but your, your schedule is not even close to what the SEC, the AC, you know, everybody else is playing. It's yeah. not. It's not. So, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I mean, I don't think we're going to have six undefeated teams, but you know what? If we do, here we go. Yeah, you could have three undefeated teams and four one-loss teams. <laughs> That's true, and, 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 and here's the other thing. I mean, and you know what? I mean, I know that, that the the committee is taking into consideration strength of schedule, which yeah. really helps the Pac-12. Of course, if the Pac-12 doesn't do well in that, and <laughs> because of the the hard teams that they the difficult schedule they have, then it's going to you know diminish their importance. But they they take the strength of schedule and also conference championship. I think this is going to hurt the SEC because, you know, it, it could be that, let's say, South Carolina or Georgia wins the East and Alabama or Auburn wins the West. One of those teams is going to have a loss. If they both go undefeated into the conference championship, one of them is going to have a loss afterwards. And then, you know, the SEC fans are going to argue, well, but you know what? We lost to undefeated, you know, Alabama 12-0 and and White, we should be one of the top four teams. It, it's going to create a problem. I think especially for the SEC. Yeah, I think all the problems that we saw with the BCS, even though I did argue that usually in the BCS era, the the two teams that we believe should have played in the national title game usually ended up playing the national title game, even despite all of uh, either the problems or all the complaints about the BCS. It usually got the national title game right. I'm not advocating for the return of the BCS, obviously. But, yes, you're right. It usually did, yeah. Usually. Okay, I mean, there was a year with USC and Oklahoma and Auburn. They were all undefeated, and Auburn got left out. 
Um, which if it happened in in 2014-2015, an SEC team getting left out of the national title game, uh, yeah, the South will rise again if that right. were to happen again yeah, right. in, uh, this year. But you're right. What if a South Carolina with no losses or one loss plays in Alabama or Auburn with no losses or one loss, and the loser of that game is going to probably say, oh, we should drop from two to four. And we'll still be in the playoff. So I, I, I do think there needs to be more inclusion. There has to be at least eight. I agree with you 100%. There has to be at least eight. Um, I personally would want all of the conference champions um, into a college football playoff. I know that was lobbied by That's the Death like. to the BCS uh, book that was put out. Dan Wetzel, a college friend of mine, Jeff Passan, um, uh, uh, wrote uh, that book. Yeah, I, Yes, the winner of Conference USA probably is going to get steamrolled. Okay, but you never know. If you really want to create a college basketball type of tournament where everyone gets included into it, um, that's what you need to do. Like Boise State, all those years when they went undefeated or lost only one game, they would be there even if they did have one loss. And um, the Broncos were really good. Too. And they were that really was good. the thing. I mean, a lot of people <laughs> on the East Coast did not see those games every week and yeah. I was like, well, they're really good. Yeah. yeah, so that's what I'm saying. You get, have at least have all the Power Fives. That's five right there, conference yeah. champion. Uh, the best of the, the non-Power Fives, either the Mountain West or Conference USA, one of the two. And then a couple, like two or three extra oh. from around, like the, the, like the second place SEC or ACC or Pac-12, whatever yeah. you think has the best, next best record. I uh, think that would be the best way yeah, to do it. and I really really would want to have a champion or two from the non-Power 5 to actually be involved every single year with a chance to win the national title instead of the, oh, you are guaranteed, one of you out of the rest of the 60, 70 schools, one of you is going to be in this new year six, even though more often than not, you're probably not going to be a part of the college football playoff, but you'll be playing in the Peach Bowl or Cotton Bowl, or whatever. It almost seems as if it's, hey, uh, can you find the last golden ticket for the Chocolate Factory? Uh, no, I want one of those teams to actually be a part of the format in which they can play for national title, not just be, you know, right on the outside, right by the velvet rope. You're almost inside the dance floor, but we'll just have you stand right by the velvet rope. No. Right, and there's, there's two other points I want to make, though, really quickly about the college football playoff that I do think needs to change. Yeah. Because the, the problem with this playoff is, is that the entrance requirements to get into it are not even all the way across. For example, Big 12 does not play a conference championship game. So you have a lot of teams that play at least 13 games. I mean, USC, I think, was it last year, played 14? Because they played Hawaii, right? One of those years. I mean, if you play Hawaii, that's 13 regular season games if you choose to go that route. And if you play a conference championship game, that's game 14. You're 14 games into it before you even play the conference champion game, or 13. So that's the first thing. The, the, The second thing is, Everyone needs to play the same amount of conference games. The SEC, I think, plays eight. Yep. Right? Eight. Now, the Pac-12 plays nine. nine. The Big Ten is either they're playing nine or going towards nine. At the ACC, they're also eight, right? Yes. Okay. We need to make it the same. Everybody needs to play the same amount of conference games. I don't care if you want to go ahead and schedule the, you know, the bottom, the, the seller dweller or the, you know, the, the guy at the bottom of, 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 a, of a power five team, okay, like a Colorado or, or what have you. Go ahead. I don't care. At least I know it's, it's a team from a BCS conference rather than, you know, scheduling an FCS team and then a team one year removed from FCS, which a lot of teams are doing right now. Yeah. Because you know what? Those two games are pretty much gimmies. 
and you don't have two gimmies. You really don't have two gimmies when you're playing a nine-game conference schedule. You really don't. So I uh, think they need to change that, too. Yeah. Lisa, it has been such a pleasure talking college football with you. It almost seems as if you're almost excited for the college football season to start. <laughs> <laughs> You know I am. Yeah, and a whole lot of us are. Uh, Lisa Horn of pigskingrind.com. Uh, you'll be hearing from her from our website as a guest on a couple of our podcasts and shows. Uh, Lisa Horn, again, from pigskingrind.com. Check out her site. And, uh, Lisa, thank you so very much for joining us, and we will talk with you down the road for sure. Yes, we will. We want to find out how buoyant our predictions are. <laughs> In 2013, the Fordham University football team was one of the revelations in Division I football. Twelve wins last season, that was a school record. One of those wins against the Temple Owls, the first win for the Fordham Rams against a football bowl subdivision team. And remember, this is the university that did produce Vince Lombardi and the seven blocks of granite. So there's a lot of history with the Fordham Rams football team, but last year's team probably made more history than any other single season team in school history and joining us right now we're pleased to be joined by the head coach of the Fordham Rams football team and a Fordham alum Joe Moorhead first of all Joe thank you so very much for joining us how are you doing today doing great how are you doing I'm doing well thank you so very much um with that season last year 12 wins a win in the uh, FCS playoffs uh going into this season there's gonna there's a lot of outside expectations so how do you approach this season compared to other seasons when there maybe wasn't those expectations after the season that you had last year our approach to this season isn't going to change um because you know our guys have received a lot of preseason accolades both individually and as a team and you know those are really a combination of the things we achieved last year in conjunction with the, the returning players we have in our potential for this year but uh our message to the players is to be a process-oriented team rather than a goal-oriented team so if you're thinking about patriot league championship or you're thinking about national chip championship you're thinking about being a player of the year things like that you really you know don't have your eye on the goal and aren't having great singleness of purpose so we want to focus on the process and the things that uh, we need to do every day on a daily basis individually you know as an offensive defensive special team and, and take care of the habits and develop you know the things necessary to be successful and you know we believe the goals will, will take care of themselves uh, what are those first few parts of that process as of right now as we get closer and closer to the 2014 season beginning you know right now we're in phase four you know and and leading up to this, when the season ended, we had our, our winter conditioning. Um, you know, we had spring ball. We had um, our off-season workouts in the summer when the guys here working with the strength and conditioning staff. And now we're entering preseason camp. So, you know, we're not focused on game one right now. We're not focused on any opponent on our schedule. We're focused not on coming out for every practice, uh, you know, making – you know, we're worried about Fordham right now and, and what, the things that we can do to develop the habits to be successful. So uh, you know, that's where we're at right now. Uh, what does it mean to you having this success last year and the season before you finished over 500 at your alma mater? It's very gratifying. You know, as, as a player here in the, in the mid-'90s, kind of in the initial journey into the kind of world of 1AA football, you know, we had mitigating success, really. And if you look at it, you know, not really much till. till you know, my senior year here, and we always talked about as players the potential that, that Fordham University had, and, you know, why can't we, you know, be the type of football program 
the, the school aspires to be on a national basis. You're talking about one of the top academic schools in the world, and we have a bunch of different, you know, disciplines that are that are well respected and nationally ranked. And it's great to be able to give the school a football program that aligns with some of the other you know, great things going on at our school. Once again, Joe Moorhead, head coach of the Fordham Rams football team, joining us. And last year, you had the offensive and defensive players of the year in the Patriot League, and the offensive player of the year, Michael Niebrick, and Stephen Hodge, defensive player of the year. I want to concentrate uh, with Michael, uh, quarterback, and a uh, individual that you had at the University of yep. Connecticut, as well as now in Fordham. Uh, last year, led the nation in uh, pass completion percentage over seventy percent. Uh, what makes him so special? I think it's really a combination of things. Uh, Michael has tremendous talent, and that's the first thing. He can throw the football accurately. Uh, he can run the football. He's a threat to beat you with his arm and with his feet. Uh, Coach Bronner does an excellent job teaching him the scheme, and he understands it very well. He's got great anticipation. And I think when you couple that with um, his teammates around him, uh, you know, guys up front who are able to, you know, help us run the ball and protect the passer and, and the weapons he has at his disposal on the edge and, uh, you know, and his des- burning desire to be great, in his competitiveness, I think all those things really are a recipe for success and has allowed him to accomplish the things that he has on the field. How's your relationship as a former quarterback with him? <laughs> well, he wears my number. <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, you know, um, I left here having some of the records, well, a lot of the records, and then, you know, they kind of started to slide down the ranks when John Skelton and Kevin Eakin showed up, and now uh, Michael's continuing to knock them out of the top five or top ten. So, uh, it's great to see someone that I recruited at UConn and we were able to reunite here. And, you know, I'm not sure he necessarily took my number by choice. I think that might have been what was available. But to see him this have this kind of success and then, you know, doing well in school and enjoying himself socially, it's, you know, it's very gratifying. He's a great kid. Last year, Niebrick threw for over 4,000 yards, three receivers over 1,000 yards, a running back over 1,000 yards as well. Do you expect those numbers in 2014? Uh, you know, the expectation level for us is to, is to be the best offense in the country, but uh, we're, we're not going to talk our way to it. We've got to earn, earn, earn our way to it, and uh, you know, that goes back to the process. And, you know, we challenge those guys every day to come out and, you know, work as hard as they can in practice to improve their individual skills, take that into group periods, take that into team periods, and, you know, carry it into the season. So I think the sky's the limit, but, you know, nothing's going to be handed to us. We're not going to be able to replicate the success that we had last year just because we want to, but certainly the potential for there is, is for us to be as good or, or better than last year. Once again, head coach Joe Moorhead of the Fordham University Football Rams joining us. Uh, you coached at the FBS level with Connecticut, uh, part of a team that went to the Fiesta Bowl and won the Big East. Uh, now you're uh, coaching a team that won the Patriot League last year and expected to do a lot of great things. Just compare at least your time in the Big East when the Big East was a uh, football conference uh, with the athletes in the Big East that you saw and with the athletes that you see on a weekly basis at the FCS level compared to the FBS level. No, I mean, it's it's all relative you know I, I think back to our you know our time at Akron when we won the first mid-american conference championship in school history and there in 05 and had the opportunity to coach Dominic Hickson who was you know uh, you know drafted by the Broncos and you know had a great career with the Giants and finished up with Carolina and Chicago and you know moving on to UConn and the things we did there you know beat Notre Dame uh, went beating South Carolina Papa John's Bowl winning the Big East outright and you know, then coming here to Fordham and be able to accomplish some things as a team, you just, you know, you have, you know, great memories at all those places, and it's, you know, it's it's as much about the people and the relationships as it is the game. So, uh, you know, all those places were special. There's a lot of great memories, and hopefully we can uh, continue to produce them here. At the 
end of your football playing career at Fordham, you spent a little bit of time, I believe, in Germany, right? Yeah. Uh, with the uh, German Football League. I don't think a lot of people even realize that the German Football League is is a thing and is in an, in existence, but it's been in existence since uh, uh, 79, 1979, yeah. I believe. So, uh, can you uh, talk with us about a little bit of your experience playing American football in Germany? No, it's, it's a uh, soccer-dominated country, obviously, and, you know, I was in Munich, and I, there's two. I think Bayern Munich is one team, and then there's another one. But, you know, it was a great opportunity. You know, gr- graduated from school here, had an opportunity to go overseas. And, you know, it wasn't the, necessarily the highest level of football, but it was an opportunity to go and get paid a little bit, see a little bit of the world, and continue to play the game that I love for, for uh, you know, just a little bit more time. Uh, do you make it back to Germany? I do not. <laughs> I do not. No time. Uh, Coach Joe Moorhead of the Fordham Rams football team, thank you so very much for your time, and best of success and luck to you and your team in the 2014 season. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. So I don't think that Coach Moorhead will head to Germany for Oktoberfest anytime soon, as long as he's a head coach. But we do thank Coach Moorhead for joining us on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, episode number 12, as well as Lisa Horn and Nino Venezia. We thank them so very much for making episode number 12 a success. And this show is about to be in the books, episode number 13, currently in construction. And by the end of the week, we will have that for you for your listening pleasure. But once again, stay tuned to www.alotofsportstalk.com. Head to our website. The end of the WNBA season has happened. The beginning of the WNBA playoffs is this week, and we have comprehensive coverage of the WNBA playoffs. We'll have an interview with the head coach of the Phoenix Mercury, Sandy Brondello, one of the best regular season teams in WNBA history, the Phoenix Mercury, the Number one seed in the Western Conference, the best team in the WNBA. They hope that they can turn their regular season success into a postseason triumph. So we will have an interview with the head coach, the first year head coach of the Phoenix Mercury, Sandy Brondello. We also have an interview with Indiana Fever rookie Maggie Lucas, our Julia Morris, one of our contributors to our site, got a chance to talk with Maggie Lucas after Indiana's regular season finale against the New York Liberty and another Another contributor helping out with our WNBA coverage, Michael Castellano, provides a feature on Indiana Fever head coach Lynn Dunn. Lynn Dunn ending her long and distinguished coaching career after this season, and Indiana hoping that they can send Lynn Dunn off into the sunset with another WNBA championship. So once again, go to www.alotofsportstalk.com for the WNBA playoff preview, and once again, you can go to our website, and we also have the preseason top 25, the A Lot of Sports Talk preseason top 25. So we thank you so very much for joining us, and we We will see you next week for episode number 13. We promise you it will be lucky number 13. Thank you so very much for joining us, and we will see you next week. All right? Take care. Bye-bye.